Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, two specialists in urology explain the new way they're doing prostate biopsies in order to greatly reduce infection risk. Just because of the positioning, we're able to get a different part of the prostate easier. So we're able to biopsy more extensively with a transparental biopsy compared to the transrectal biopsy. A doctor tells about his mission to the Bahamas in the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian. Each day we would go out into the streets to see any shut-ins in the morning and then in the neighborhood and then have the clinic in the afternoons to the evening in a local church. And a certified tobacco treatment specialist shares what has worked best for her patients who've successfully quit smoking over the years. You can cut down on your daily smoking and work towards it and research is showing that the cut down method works very well. All that plus a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about a medical mission trip to the Bahamas after the devastation of Hurricane Dorian. Then we'll explore some of the most successful methods of quitting smoking as we continue to focus on lung cancer during the month of November. But first, we'll learn about a new technique for prostate biopsies that greatly reduces a man's risk of infection. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The best and most reliable way of diagnosing prostate cancer is through biopsy. But for a variety of reasons, the way in which a prostate biopsy is done is changing. Here to talk about this are upstate urologists Timothy Byler and Oleg Shapiro. Dr. Byler is an assistant professor of urology, and Dr. Shapiro is an associate professor of urology and of radiation oncology. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Thank you. Hello. If I understand correctly, for a man who maybe had a PSA blood test result that was high and there's concern for prostate cancer, a biopsy would be the first truly invasive test he would undergo, right, through that process. Dr. Byler? Yes, correct. Uh, when a man, uh, when the blood test is found to uh, be elevated, the PSA or a digital rectal exam is abnormal, uh, that signifies the need to test the prostate uh, as a source and, and determine if there is prostate cancer present. Uh, and the way we do that currently is through biopsy, yes. And so you as a physician, you, that test has to give accurate results, it has to be safe, and you don't want it to be cause too much discomfort. That's kind of the goal of... Yes, so to get our diagnostic uh, tissue, minimizing patient risk, yes. So how is a traditional biopsy done? There's been many ways of doing a biopsy over the years. Um, what came around the 90s was a transrectal biopsy where a probe is placed uh, in the rectum and the needle is passed through the rectal wall into the prostate, which is just above it. Uh, and this has been working for a long time. This is the standard of care. So is the patient um, sedated during that? So the, patient, so the patient usually has uh, local anesthetic uh, injected the same way that we do the biopsy. Um, it is uh, obviously fairly uncomfortable or can be uncomfortable for a lot of men, uh, especially with the pressure of the probe in the rectum. But the procedure itself takes about two minutes to do, uh, maybe three, and uh, again, tolerated fairly well in the office for, by about, I'd say, 97 to 98% of men. Uh, in the remainder of uh, patients, we need to do it under anesthesia in the operating room. So what concerns are there with traditional biopsy? So the, the main concern is the rising infection rate. So uh, our bacteria uh, that's all around us is becoming more and more Im immune to antibiotic therapies that we have. And the um, infection and sepsis rates from uh, transrectal biopsies have gone up dramatically. Um, and uh, that prompted the medical community to search for new and more uh, safe uh, ways to uh, proceed with the biopsy. So I want to hear more about that, but first tell me what, I mean, what happens if rectal bacteria gets into the prostate during the biopsy? What, what does that do? Sure. So uh, obviously uh, going through the rectum, even though we prep the rectum and we give patients antibiotics, there's a lot of bacteria that live within our gut. And um, uh, what happens is you introduce it into the 
normal tissue that's supposed to be sterile, we introduce it to the, into the blood and pe people can get really sick, they can get septic. So they become febrile, uh, their blood pressure can drop, they may need to be admitted and some people have to be admitted to ICU. There's actually a mortality rate that can be associated with this, although low, but it's still a significant mortality rate that's associated with the prostate biopsy. So it could be really severe. It, could it be... can be, absolutely. Okay. okay, so tell me about transperineal biopsy, Dr. Byler. All right, so transperineal biopsy is an, an alternative method of uh, sampling the prostate tissue. Uh, it's prompted by the same indicators that would indicate a transrectal biopsy. But in this scenario, we use a rectal probe to visualize the prostate, but the needles are passed through the skin above the, uh, above the anus, just below the scrotum. This avoids that rectal mucosa completely uh, and allows us to not introduce those bacteria that are always present. So the infection rate is like, doesn't exist. There's no it's infection rate. Extremely low, near zero. Yes. Okay. Um, now for this procedure, is the patient sedated? No. Uh, ideally, we would not. Uh, so we actually had a, a visiting professor from Michigan visit that educated us on a new method they, they've been using there uh, with a large patient series of local blocks so that we're able to minimize the anesthesia needs as well. Uh, certainly, if we were transitioning to an anesthesia for everybody kind of biopsy, that would increase risk. So that's our, our goal is to do this under local uh, in the office with uh, minimal uh, external medication. So the patient really wouldn't feel it. You, they'd the, be this is the purpose. Yeah, the block, we try our best to um, numb up the whole uh, skin there and the pathway through to the prostate so that we're able to do the biopsy with minimal pain. So is the transperineal biopsy as accurate as the rectal? Yes, it's been shown to actually be, in some cases, more accurate. Uh, there are a num numerous series that have been done uh, that have shown just because of the positioning, we're able to get a different part of the prostate easier, and that, that area of the prostate can also harbor prostate cancer. So we're able to biopsy more extensively with a transperineal biopsy compared to the transrectal biopsy. So why did we not do transperineal until now? It has to do with the imaging uh, and the uh, ultrasound that became, became available. Actually, interestingly, if you go back to 60s and 70s, that's how urologists used to do these biopsies. They just did it by finger guidance. You literally did it by feel. Uh, obviously, nobody does it these days. So uh, the, um, the development of the, the ultrasound technology and the probes that give us two different views at the same time and the understanding of anatomy have guided us to, to a kind of going back to the old ways, except it's just much more, more, advanced. more advanced. That's exactly right. All right. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with urologists Dr. Timothy Byler and Dr. Oleg Shapiro from the urology department at Upstate. So let's talk about what happens if the biopsy results are positive for prostate cancer. What do you as physicians consider before recommending what, if anything, a patient should do? Uh, it's a little bit of a difficult question. Uh, the biopsy, only because the biopsy, uh, we take 12 samples. So there's very, very different patients. So one patient can have one sample positive or one patient can have all 12. Um, and at the same time, we also look at percentages on each sample. So you can have like 5% of a sample or 100% of a sample. Um, so, and also we look at grade of the tumor in the sample. So there's a lot of variables that come into play. Um, so there are patients that are, we find minimal prostate cancer and they choose to observe it, all the way to patients that need aggressive therapy based on uh, their number of cores and their, um, you know, pathology. So when all of these samples are taken, how soon do you get the results back? We really strive for one week, but we usually schedule follow-ups in around two weeks. Uh, just so that we have the pathologist has plenty of time to go through it. Uh, the way the pathology community does this is they tend to do like a group view of it, and they all look at it and kind of agree that there's high-risk prostate cancer. So we have to give them time to prepare the samples, view the samples, do their little powwow, and kind of figure out as a group that they agree together. And then you have to consider the individual patient and everything else. Oh, certainly. All the pathologist gives me back is that there is prostate cancer, but then 
when the patient comes back to the office, that's when we kind of put things together and say, you know, based on your medical concerns and your age and your, you know, PSA and all, you know, your pathology, this is what the best treatment for you would be. Yeah, it's very individualized. And then in terms of treatments, if you, if you, if this is something that needs to be treated, What's out there in terms of treatment options? So, the, again, there are multiple options. The, the, one, two of the mainstay options, if you will, are surgery, obviously, uh, which is done robotically uh, these days. Uh, very few surgeries, if any, are done op- in an open fashion. And then subsequently radiation therapy, which can be administered either via the uh, seed implant into the prostate or, or external beam radiation therapy. Um, there are some other options, such as uh, uh, high-intensity focused ultrasound, which is considered experimental at this point. There's also cryosurgery or freezing the prostate, which can be reserved for people that recur after a original therapy. Uh, but again, the two mainstays is the surgery radiation therapy. How do you determine which is a more appropriate, surgery or radiation? So a lot of it has to do with the patient uh, preference. So I, I'd like, I like to tell my patients they have to pick their poison, if you will, because both therapies have their own uh, set of side effects. Um, some people are not good surgical candidates, and then they have to be radiated. Um, some people are great surgical candidates, and they prefer just to get it out and, and, and obviously follow the PSA closely. Uh, some people cannot recover. Uh, they don't have time to recover because they're taking care of their family member. It, it's a really individualized uh, decision based on uh, that particular patient. Usually patients see surgeon and a radiation oncologist, and they decide what's best uh, for them. And with the surgery, it's uh, done after the surgery, right? Well, you, you are done, but you do have to follow the PSA, and there's always, unfortunately, a risk of recurrence, just like with any other cancer. Uh, so you have to be followed closely, and some high-risk patients need to have everything done. They need to have surgery, radiation, possible hormone therapy, which is uh, ablating the testosterone levels because prostate cancer feeds in testosterone, possibly chemotherapy, and then further and further we go down the line. Uh, but again, it's very individualized, and it depends on the pathology on the biopsy. Well, and the radiation is individualized as well, right? It may be, it may take longer depending on the size. That, that is correct. And as a matter of fact, uh, we were part of the trial that hopefully showed to decrease, if you will, the uh, side effects from radiation, at least to the rectum, uh, by placing a gel. It's called spacer gel that goes between the rectal wall and the prostate because one of the side effects of radiation therapy is proctitis or inflammation of the, of the rectal wall, which produces diarrhea, which can be fairly long-lasting. So what we're doing, as a matter of fact, the same way, transperineally, is we're putting this spacer gel between the prostate and the rectum to increase the space between the two organs. So when the radiation oncologist radiates the prostate, he or she can spare the rectal wall and the nerves that run along uh, along the prostate so the erectile function can stay fairly intact uh, and uh, there's a much lesser risk of proctitis or, or injury to the bowel, which can happen with radiation therapy. So this space or gel is a barrier. That is correct. And it goes away after some time. So it's, it's, a, it's a biological substance that we inject uh, under ultrasound guidance the same way we do the biopsy. But again, it goes right between the two organs, the rectum and the prostate, and it kind of pushes the rectum away from the prostate. So the radiation, so you can give a higher dose of radiation to the periphery of the prostate where the prostate cancer usually lives, sparing the rectum. Okay. And Upstate was one of the sites uh, where this was being studied. That's correct. Before it was approved. That is correct. That is absolutely correct. So yeah, we're going full speed with that right now. Yep. So you're satisfied with the outcomes that patients have had oh, with ab- the space or Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the people that had it are very happy, and uh, the radiation oncologists are very happy because they can actually give a higher dose to where it needs to go. For a shorter period of time, perhaps. Uh, possibly for a shorter period of time. And again, it depends on the disease itself, but yes. Now, I know one of the terms that we've heard of when we talk about prostate cancer is watchful waiting. Um, so it, a man could have the biopsy and then come back, and it, it still could be that you opt for watchful waiting, right? Yes. Yeah, so there's basically two groups. There's watchful waiting and there's active surveillance. Um, so watchful waiting is, uh, they're both observation modes where we don't actively treat the prostate cancer. Uh, the watchful waiting is usually 
much older men that you know were really peripheral like our chances of uh, of intervening are very low active surveillance is much more vigorous uh, requires uh, you know routine biopsies to ensure the cancer hasn't developed further uh, routine PSA checks uh, has the triggers of doing a biopsy sooner uh, with changes in PSA dynamics and whatnot um, so I just want to make that distinction because there is a, there is two different types of observation um, that a man can choose from. So under active surveillance, then, my question was going to be, um, would you face a biopsy in the future? So you potentially could if you're under the active surveillance. 100%. Okay. Um, part of the surveillance protocol is a biopsy. Usually one year after diagnosis, there's a confirmatory biopsy. And then we try to get guys out somewhere between three and five years from that based on their other clinical factors and their, you know, the risk of their disease and all that sort of stuff. The reason it's done is because we try to avoid side effects of therapy. Sometimes the side effects of therapy are actually worse than the disease itself. So we're trying to keep the patient, the men with, with low-risk prostate cancer without any sequela of therapy for as long as we can and possibly for the rest of their lives. But sometimes these men do progress and they need to be treated, but we have to keep an eye on them. And actually the way we keep an eye on them is after the original biopsy, as Dr. Bailey has mentioned, the next step would be an MRI fusion biopsy or uranf, and that's where that particular procedure uh, comes in. All right. Well, good to know. Well, thank you both. Thank you to Dr. Timothy Byler and Dr. Oleg Shapiro. They're urologists in the Department of Urology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, providing medical care in a hurricane's aftermath. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The National Weather Service says Hurricane Dorian was the strongest and most destructive storm of the 2019 hurricane season. The northern Bahamas, the Abaco Island, and the Grand Bahama Island were devastated in early September by Dorian's Category 5 winds, which were estimated to have reached over 180 miles per hour with a storm surge of greater than 18 feet. An upstate doctor who is one of those who traveled to the Bahamas on a medical mission soon after the storm is here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about his trip. Dr. David Lehman is a distinguished service professor of medicine. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Lehman. Thank you. Now, the storm killed 65 people or more and, and left more than 70,000 people homeless. What drew you to want to travel there to help provide relief? Right. So I... Um was sitting in, in, in my lounge chair uh, watching cable news and I saw a man with his baby on a boat that was headed to Miami being informed that either him or his baby would be allowed in the United States. They would be turned back, they would be refused entry to the United States. I got, I, at that point, and that, the reason for that was that the Trump administration refused temporary protected status for B Bahamians, going against not just morality and ethics, but against all longstanding policy in the United States for other countries. So that and, sprung you into action. You so what, at that point, I remember the words of St. Augustine, who said that uh, Hope had two beautiful daughters. The first daughter was anger and the second daughter was courage. So I was very angry uh, at that point, and I be began to think, I gotta do something about this to give a different face to the United States to these poor people. Now, you have a background in doing medical relief yes, work yourself. Right. Yes. Where, where else have you traveled? I traveled to Puerto Rico uh, after Hurricane Maria, and then there was a New York Times article front page uh, that showed the devastation of Haiti after Hurricane Matthew, and I, that I was moved with, with pity and with sorrow at that. So. so when you decided that you wanted to act and do something, uh, where do you turn? What, what group do you connect with? What, what did you do? So I went, so, so I went on the Internet before, before uh, I went 
to Haiti and researched for, you know, not a lot of time, but for a significant amount of time, looking at organizations that have very low overhead, almost no administrative fees, uh, and all the money going to the place that you're going to be going to. And the International Medical Relief uh, was an organization that um, I uh, joined in Haiti. Um, we, there was, uh, myself was the only physician, and there were uh, 20 nurses and a nurse practitioner and a PA with me in Haiti, and we provided care to 1,500 patients in a week. Um, uh, it was an intense experience, um, and uh, we had uh, upstate, uh, uh, upstate Medical University provided saline for me to take on the trip. And the first two liters of saline, I got IV that night because I passed out because my blood pressure dropped. Oh, from wow. Ball. I was very dehydrated. So it was an intense trip at that point, but it was obvious to me that the organization, uh, they were on the ground, they did all the stuff that I wanted them to do, and I was very pleased with that experience, as, as arduous as it was. So the organization was on the ground prior to right. the Right, so, so the way it worked here, it was different, Maria, it's different in each place depending upon the situation. So originally, we were destined to, so I joined, I, so this was just an organization I'm very familiar with now, and I just said, picked up the phone, and I guess, said, let's, are you going to the Bahamas? That was literally 10 days before we actually went to the Bahamas, was when I picked the phone up. And they, so it's, it's this post-disaster relief is, is kind of a mad rush to try to figure out the logistics. So originally, we were going to leave Fort Lauderdale on a boat chartered directly to Abaco, um, and um, uh, that morphed into um, going to the Grand Bahamas simply because there was nobody on Abaco. Oh, everyone was... Everyone was... There was it was a ban on people coming into Abaco because everybody had to get off the island because there's many more than 65 people that died. There's many people on... There many hundreds of people on Abaco died. The stench was intense. And so there was actually no infrastructure. There were no buildings left on that island, and there were no people that were alive. They had to exhume. Had to. Uh, they had to um, recover all the bodies, and so for sanitation purposes. And actually, there was just nobody left there to care for. We were diverted to the Grand Bahamas. Now they experienced lots of flooding, not as intensive winds. So there were structures that were still standing on that island. So were there people who left Abaco and came to the Grand Bahama Island? No, for so we went directly from Fort Lauderdale to uh, Grand Bahamas. Local residents, yes. Okay, so that's what, what we served Right, so they, they bifurcated uh, the refugees, the internal intra-refugees from uh, uh, Abaco to Grand Bahamas and to uh, the larger uh, islands that around. So, what, But I saw a significant number of uh, people that were from Abaco the on to Grand Bahamas, staying with family and, and friends and that. Um, so um, the, the um, population served was a Haitian immigrant community who had lived there, they're residents, they've lived, lived there for many years, um, but they, uh, they, their, their infrastructure there from their healthcare process is that they are the lowest members of their socioeconomic status and they have very poor access to, to health care um, uh, in, in a significant minority of that population. So we served, there was, tw there was one other physician, myself, and uh, three nurse practitioners, PAs, and uh, 10 nurses that uh, served uh, 550 to 600 pay people over, over a four-day period. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking about providing medical care in the aftermath of a hurricane with Dr. David Lehman, a distinguished service professor from Upstate and a doctor who traveled to the Bahamas. So tell me about the types of care you provided. What sorts of illnesses or injuries it, did these so, people have? So um, after, after uh, Matthew in, in Haiti, it was a lot of separative abscesses post uh um, uh, jagged cuts, infected, et cetera, a lot of uh, subacute injuries that I cared for and medical, just general medical type uh, relief. Uh, in, um, uh, in the Bahamas, it primarily was general medical relief. So there was no pharmacies open. They had no meds. They had, you know, people that were out of their meds for the high blood pressure and for their asthma and all this other stuff had to be supplied with that, we brought all medicine. We bring all medicines with us uh, 
when we do this. And so we're able to supply them with their kind of a, a buttress to that. There was, this, I would say, a significant minority, maybe 20% of the population that never seen a physician before. And I was caring for them for the first time. They were trying it. So I was doing kind of urgent care with them and trying to, to let them know if they're, they, they, they needed to seek medical attention, et cetera, for different types of illnesses. But very similar to, a, to an office practice type based thing, uh, 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 general medical practice. So you would ask the person, you know, what medicine they were taking for right. their high blood pressure right. and, and give them the equivalent. Right, right, right. Whatever. Yeah, basically. So how long do you tide them over for? I mean, what, what's the outlook for how soon they'd have pharmacies? 30 days. Okay. Uh, which only because that sounds about right. <laughs> you know, you can't, can't give them a year's worth of supply. You'll lose your supply for somebody else. So right. it's a decision process with that. So where did you stay when you were there? And, and so we had to, we were, we, uh, each day we would go out into the streets to see any shut-ins in the morning and then in the neighborhood and then have the clinic in the afternoons to the evening uh, in a local church uh, that had cleared out their common area. So we worked out of two local churches um, and we slept there. We, uh, we, we slept in, in the, at the same site that we provide medical care to. Um, so did them. you bring all of your own sort of bedding and food? Yeah, so, and so I had a, so we had, uh, you bring your own tent, uh, you bring your own food, bring your own water, uh, and um, you know uh, any personal personal stuff. You bring all your own. Um, once we got there, uh, our pallet was delayed um, for a day, and so we were happy that we were able to bring our own food because there was we didn't have any water or other things like that. So you have to bring your own stuff. Yeah. Can you tell us about the beautician you before? Oh befriended? yeah. So yeah, Mama Marie. So she. She was the second day we were there. She, I, we were going into the, to a, uh, Haitian community that this we were told that this block is you know, a lot of people are in need at this block. So we went in there and so I, uh, was walking down the street and we went house to house and it turns out that we were I went to a home that uh, actually was her place of business. So this woman named Mama Marie, she was kind of a, uh, the block matriarch, you know she's everybody. She knows everybody's business, <laughs> and she was, you know, she's good, good egg. And so she also was a beautician uh, for the women in the in the area. And so she had had her place flooded, and it was just up and running for the first day. So I uh, talked with her, and she helped us go around to introduce us to the people around there and drum up business for the afternoon. And we bonded because my mother uh, was a was a beautician, uh, and so we kind of talked about that. So it was kind of a Neat. good moment. Well, I think listeners may remember um, that you are the same physician providing in Syracuse house calls for the homeless. Correct. So talk to me about the similarities between the relief work in the aftermath of a hurricane and the homeless population. There's lots of analogies. And uh, the uh, uh, I think my work, my international work I've done for actually for 30 years, more than 30 years in Kenya and Nepal and India. Ecuador and the places I did with international medical relief kind of helps me uh, meet the people where they're at, kind of realize that, you know, your ego stops there, you forget that, that, and you kind of um, try to provide dignity to people, uh, which is more important than medical care, and that's the first priority. Um, And uh, in addition to that, from a logistical and practical standpoint, um, it helped me do my med box, for instance. I have front-loaded my medicines now. I'm able to bring medicines with me um, to, uh, to the people in the, in the, in the, on the streets, antibiotics, um, blood pressure meds, inhalers, things like that. So it's very similar in that regard as I provide kind of a... Um, uh, my, my role, since there's nobody that's their doctor, is to be their doctor until they're housed. And so that's kind of an analogy to the interim medical care that I would provide until, say, the pharmacy opened in Bahamas or they could see their doctor who had his business closed and was going to reopen, that kind of thing. What does your med box look like? So it's a, it, we got it from uh, Best Buy, and uh, it's, a, it's a locker kind of thing where you carry it around, and uh, it's uh, full of uh, about anywhere, yeah, about two weeks' supply of the different medicines that I'm carrying, antibiotics, just, blood pressure. So it's all portable and it, you've oh, yeah. got everything. yeah, you know. yeah. Well, you have a reputation um, for helping the underserved. Is that why you chose a career in medicine? 
so I was a, uh, a religious brother in a, in, a, in, a healthcare, in a healthcare order in the Catholic Church. And uh, I, uh, my novitiate, after my novitiate year, I went to Kenya and worked. I was a pharmacist before I was a physician, so I ran a hospital pharmacy in the Kenyan bush for a year. Um, and uh, came back, and that experience uh, really touched me and kind of moved me to, to, to do more physical touch, more, more contact uh, in medicine, um, although my pharmacy career was is still a very wonderful memory. I still try to bring that forward um, to teach, et cetera, when I'm here. So when I got back from, the, from that, um, I left the order and... Uh, Went to medical school. the 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 joke in the family is is that uh, when I took the first set of vows for the order, I thought they said celebrate instead of celibate. Uh, <laughs> so my wife and I still, after thirty five years, so I, you know, <laughs> I think I made the right call. <laughs> well, what advice do you have for any healthcare providers who are interested in getting involved in providing medical right. relief? So first thing is, is got you got to want it. You got to have a desire to help with that. Number two would be leave, leave ego at the door, and you're going to be part of a team. You're no, nobody different in terms of, uh, you know, status or whatever. That's, that's gone, especially when you're serving the people like that. And you also have to be extremely flex- flexible with conditions. You're going to have to be, you know, we're sleeping on the floor. I was sleeping on this. My, you know, back was hurting, and I was had to take showers outside, and we had to, the toilets you don't even want to talk about. So the people have to be realize that that's going to be part of your life with that. And have to have the gear to bring with yeah, them, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for this, per- yeah, 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 exactly. Um, does the medical license work internationally? Yeah, Are- so it's uh, the, there's a, an agreement with these places that uh, will honor honor your like. For instance, in in Puerto Rico, they had an agreement with the government. I was writing controlled substance prescriptions on a piece of cardboard. The pharmacies would take. I mean, it was kind of crazy with that, but I was able to. to so we had a, I have, remember a, an Iraq a war veteran who uh, was, had an IED that, uh, in Puerto Rico that was in a way, way back, and he, was, he, couldn't, he couldn't traverse the, the stream outside of his house, that I was able to give him tramadol, and I was riding on the back of a piece of cardboard that the pharmacist would recommend would get. So. You said he had an IED? Well, he was in Iraq, and he had an uh, improvised explosive device go off and he had lost his leg and he hurt his oh. back with that. So that was when he was in Iraq. And so he's in a chronic pain and he needed some medicines and et cetera. So there's, there's ways around the, the license thing. Well, thank you to Dr. David Lehman, a distinguished service professor of medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what works best if you want to quit smoking? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Cigarette smoking is the number one risk factor for lung cancer, and it's linked to about 80% of lung cancer deaths. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about smoking and how to succeed at quitting is Teresa Hankin. She's a certified tobacco treatment specialist and a registered respiratory therapist for the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Everyone must realize the connection between cigarette smoking and lung cancer, right? Do you ever encounter someone who doesn't really get that yet? Sometimes you do. Sometimes people aren't aware. One of the things people are not aware of is the connection between secondhand smoke. There's roughly 8,000 deaths a year related to secondhand smoke and that exposure in the home or or the workplace. Education is key. I feel that when we know better, we can do better. Now, there's this Surgeon General warning on cigarette packages. Is it on vaping products? It is on some of the products, but as as you know, these products are not regulated by the FDA. So um, 
it is it's it's really difficult there's a lot of black market uh, products out there a lot of things that our youth and college students um, can get online so some do and some don't you said it's not regulated by the FDA have have we shown has science proven that vaping causes lung cancer yet there, there was a study in 2018 that showed that vaping, the chemicals from vaping, there are heavy metals that are carcinogens, formaldehyde. Uh, the flavorings are very bad for your lungs. They're meant to be ingested, not inhaled, so they cause lung injury. So there are studies out there that have proven lung injuries, as well as we know the acute lung injuries and the deaths that we have had this year alone um, are very substantial, 37 deaths in 29 states. And the median age for those reported lung injuries are 23 years of age. Now Important to know. Let's review a little bit about the um, these lung injuries because those, those have been pretty scary. These are in young, healthy people who vape, right, and show up with a severe lung injury? Yes. So some of the... Um, some of the studies that they have done have shown that the tissue, the lung tissue, actually, it's, it's a chemical burn. There are these chemicals that you're ingesting um, cause a lot of injury to the actual lung tissue, and then the lung is not able to achieve gas exchange, um, and is, we cannot sustain life without gas exchange. Um, it's, it's very, very harmful to the lungs. People in the beginning didn't realize, um, thought that vaping was this safer alternative to smoking. I think one of the most important things that we need to share with our youth and our young adults, it's not just the youth, but it's the young adults, it's rampant on uh, college campuses, as we see the median age was 23, in that anything that you inhale into your lungs causes harm to the tissue. It's not meant to be there. And people are losing their lives over this, so it is, it's an epidemic and very severe right now. Now, is it correct that some people who were cigarette smokers have turned to vaping thinking that that would help them quit smoking? Do you see that? Yes, that, that is very true. In my practice, I don't see people quitting smoking with vaping. It's very rare. Sometimes I do. If that is the case, Upstate's goal is to help people come off nicotine addiction, be free of nicotine addiction, and that includes vaping. So part of our tobacco treatment um, protocol is that we will help someone come off vaping as well. It's, it's rare to see someone uh, in practice that has actually quit smoking. What they usually do is dual use, so they'll, they'll use both. So let's talk about quitting. Um, so over your years of experience, what have you seen that works best for people who want to quit tobacco? Very good question. Um, Upstate's program really is so structured to help people and remove barriers for quitting. So there are three steps that are proven to help people be successful at quitting. One is a treatment plan. That's the right medication and the right combination and dosage that works for that particular person. The tobacco treatment specialist is trained in helping people achieve that goal, whether or not they vape or smoke. Nicotine addiction is nicotine addiction. Um, the classes that we have at Upstate's HealthLink are now going to be called um, smoking and vaping cessation classes. So the three steps are the treatment plan, ongoing counseling and support with an expert, which we have um, for all our clinics here at Upstate, including our lung cancer screening program, that it is free to immediate family members as well. So we look at that big picture. And then the third step is a relapse prevention plan. We have ongoing support and counseling. I have some of my cancer center patients that a year to a year and a half after they've quit, they'll still call and say, hey, can I come in for a refresher? Can I talk about my relapse prevention plan? Can I talk about where I'm struggling? And that's the key to someone beating nicotine addiction. Let me ask you about, you said treatment plan, you mentioned medication. Are those um, pills or patches, or what, what is the medication that helps? Mm -hmm. So there are seven FDA-approved medications. People know about the nicotine patches, the 21, 14, and 7 milligram um, strength, as well as nicotine gum and lozenges. There's also the nicotine inhaler, the nicotine nasal spray, there is Welbutrin, uh, Bupropion, which is a pill, and Chantix, which is a pill which people are very familiar with. 
What people are not familiar with is that there are ways to combine these products so that you get the most relief from nicotine cravings. And on a weekly basis, I will have a patient at the cancer center say to me, this is so much easier than before. Not easy, but easier because I'm comfortable and I don't have withdrawal symptoms. So we help uh, someone tweak that treatment plan to where they are the most comfortable. So they may have a patch and an inhaler or take the a pill of some sort and, and have the inhaler as well or yes. the gum. Yes, that's okay. it exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of ongoing support and counseling, is that on a like a weekly basis or an as needed? So it's great. It's as needed. It's how the, the patient and the family members want to do it. Again, at the Cancer Center, very often I'll work with families, a grandmother and a grandson that live together that both want to quit. Um, we know that ongoing support and counseling increases your chances two to three times to be successful. And here's the important part, to quit but to stay quit and maintain this nicotine-free lifestyle. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with tobacco treatment specialist, Teresa Hankin. Does cold turkey work, quitting cold turkey? Some people can. Statistically, people don't stay quit if they try to quit cold turkey. They became fru- become frustrated and can't maintain that lifestyle. Part of the support and counseling is giving people these tools that help them get through the cravings and to learn about nicotine addiction and what actually happens in the brain in the way that in, in, in that the way that uh, the brain has a memory. And those particular nicotine receptors uh, remember that someone used to have so much nicotine a day. So they can it kind of rear its ugly head at any time. So having these tools to understand that it's physical as well as habit in nature and help people work at both parts. Does it uh, help to set a date in the future that you put on the calendar and say, I'm going to quit on the 30th or, or whatever? It absolutely does. So there's two ways to look at quitting any type of tobacco. You can um, set a quit date and just go for it. You can cut down on your daily smoking and work towards it. And research is showing that the cut down method, which I see in my practice, works very well. So an example of that is if someone smokes 40 cigarettes a day and someone says, oh, you just have to quit and you have to quit right now, it's very scary and and as, as well as physically difficult. So we work with that patient, helping them figure out how to cut down successfully, let's say starting with nicotine lozenges. And then in the future, they set that quit date. So that is very helpful. What is so great about that is it puts the power in in that person's hands. Are you able to predict which person is going to be successful with quitting? Really get a feel for when someone says, I'm ready to do this because I want to do it, not because my grandkids are scaring me into it or my doctor said I had to because I just got this diagnosis of lung cancer. When someone wants to do it because it's for them, you see that they will be more successful. But I will tell you that the support and counseling that can be weekly, um, it can be every two weeks. People usually want to start with every week, but there's no exact way that they have to do it. We mold this to what works for the individual and the family members. Um, but it sounds like the person really needs to have the desire coming from themselves yes, to I actually agree do with it. That. Even yes. if a doctor told them they need to, they need to want to follow the doctor's yes. advice. Yes. Um, now, for someone who's smoked a long, long time, decades, is it harder for that person to quit than someone who has smoked for a shorter period of time? It can be, but with the right tools, as I spoke of earlier, it's easier than people think. All right. Now, um, when you have someone that you're working with that's been a smoker and is trying to quit, do you recommend that people be screened for lung cancer? Yes, we always recommend lung cancer screening. It it is found to be able to get very small um, early stages of lung cancer, so we will always recommend that uh, to patients. We have an excellent program here, our tobacco treatment program for lung cancer screening patients is free of charge um, to that patient as well as their family members. So there's nothing like that in central New York that gives people that ongoing support and help. We also have grants in place that will help people with financial hardship. So a big barrier to quitting smoking and someone that has smoked for a very long time is that 
believe it or not, the cost of these medications, especially in combination, can be very pricey. Even though you're not buying the cigarettes, it can be well over the cost of the cigarettes, especially if they buy them at the reservation, which a lot of central New Yorkers do. So we remove those barriers. We have uh, many patients that go through the program that are beyond grateful that this program helped them get the help that they need in the combination therapy so that they could afford this and do this. Because as I said earlier, that is the first step to treatment. Now, if someone uh, goes through the lung cancer screening and they're found to have uh, something that needs to be treated or investigated further, how important is it for them to not be smoking during their treatment for lung cancer? It is very important. Part of our job as tobacco treatment specialists is to get that education piece out to our patients, that they are aware that whether they have surgery biopsies, whether they're going to have chemotherapy or radiation treatments, that continued smoking does can interfere with the medications, can make the side effects worse from treatments. So we talk a lot about that, and we will talk about what is it about tobacco smoke that causes cancers. And really put the power, again, you put the power in that patient, that they have that education, that they can go forward, and that they learn about nicotine addiction and tobacco smoke and cancers, and then they can make an informed choice as to whether or not what they want to do during their cancer treatments. Tell me about what Upstate University Hospital offers for um, visitors who come to the hospital who are smokers, because obviously there's no smoking in the hospital, no smoking on our campus anywhere. Um, but there are people who come to maybe visit and are smokers. So what do we have in place for that? So we have a wonderful nicotine replacement for visitors program here at Upstate. It's the first in um, central New York. We offer two four-milligram nicotine lozenges as well as some uh, information for our folks that come on campus. And, it, and it's twofold. We want to keep people comfortable as they're here. We want to offer them compassionate care. If you just took you know, your loved one into the ER and didn't know you were going to be here for surgery 12 hours later and you're craving um, you know, that nicotine addiction, you're having severe cravings, uh, someone can get nicotine lozenges as many as they need while they're here free of charge. And this is 24-7 at both campuses as well as the cancer center while it's open um, during its um, business hours. And now New York State offers some quit strategies for smokers and vapors. Is that right? Yes, they do. So the New York State Smokers Quit Line, just as of this month, is offering uh, nicotine replacement starter kits to people that just vape. Not, not just smokers, but vaping using electronic cigarettes as well. And this is huge. This is in re response to this epidemic, especially among our college students. We have... Um, there's about 3.6 million middle and high school uh, students, uh, young ones, that, that are vaping right now. That is huge. But that doesn't take into account how, how rampant it is on college campuses. Um, so that um, it's really important to get that out there to help these, these young adults as well realize that there's a way to, to battle this nicotine addiction and and not to wait too long, if you will, to get right on it. So the New York State Smokers Quit Line coming up with this is, I think, is going to help a lot of people. Thank you to Teresa Hankin. She's a certified tobacco treatment specialist and a registered respiratory therapist for Upstate's Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Casey Newberg is from the Southern Tier in New York. She retired as coordinator and trainer of volunteers at Lourdes Hospital. She sent us two poems that look at the aging and death of parents. Here is Opening in the Attic, and That's That. Opening in the Attic, The Father, Beloved unknown. One, I remember one sure thing, his hands, his long fingers pointing out words, his hand turning pages. 
My hand now touches the smooth, dark back of this handless brush. I sniff the stiff bristles, breathe deep, bay rum, find a lost hair, thread it into mine. Two. Near the bottom, I find a black and white image of a child with my name among four laughing faces, my sisters, trace of a perfect summer at Doc McCarty's farm when the only death we knew was our father's. The tattered photo glides from my hand toward the attic floor. I reach out to stop us from falling. The second poem, and that's that. The mother, known and beloved. While our mother was dying her arduous death, for weeks, when each of us came to visit, she'd draw us close and whisper, I'm going to hell. Even as we assured her, we wondered, what did she do? What could be worse than we already knew? By the time the priest was called, she was again tight-lipped and tough. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, what did they really know? Ha, we knew she'd come around. Good God, I've raised 10 kids. I'll go wherever I damn well please. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Music